I also think the suppression of Dr. King is extremely relevant to our contemporary moment. While we rightly celebrate his leadership during the Montgomery bus boycott, his determination in Birmingham, and the inimitable eloquence of his I Have a Dream speech, it's important to also recall a less heralded aspect of King's history, the FBI's intensive efforts to squelch his dissent. That's Jules Boykoff, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Jules Boykoff on Martin Luther King Jr. and the FBI. The FBI, once called by American Indian Movement activist John Trudell as the Federal Bureau of Intimidation, has a long history of persecuting people for thought crimes, having wrong political ideas. Central to the FBI functioning as a kind of national political police was J. Edgar Hoover. He ran the FBI as an unchallenged lord of the manor, and his agents were serfs to do his bidding. Hoover had a particular animosity for and loathing of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., the Nobel Peace Prize winner and leader of the civil rights movement. He called King the most notorious liar in the country. And President John F. Kennedy and his attorney general brother Robert signed off on Hoover's request to wiretap Dr. King. Using infiltrators, the spread of rumors, fabrication of evidence, and media manipulation, the FBI launched a full-scale smear campaign to discredit Dr. King and the civil rights movement. It was all done, of course, in the name of national security. April 4, 2008, marks the 40th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He was only 39 when he was killed in Memphis, Tennessee. To talk about Dr. King and the FBI is Jules Boykoff. He's professor of politics and government at Pacific University. He's the author of the suppression of dissent. He spoke at Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon, on the national holiday of Martin Luther King's birthday in January 2008. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you today to celebrate the life and legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr., someone who I believe is one of the real heroes of U.S. history. Now, I grew up in the United States and I passed through the US educational system and as such I was fortunate enough to learn a fair amount about Dr. King and if you grew up in the United States too maybe your experiences were similar to mine you might have learned about Dr. King's leadership roles in the Montgomery bus boycott or in Selma, Alabama you might have learned about his time in the Birmingham jail and the brilliant letter he wrote while he was there you might have learned about his idea from that letter from a Birmingham jail that, to quote him, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If you're like me, you probably at some point in your life have heard at least a snippet from his amazing I Have a Dream speech. You also probably know a good bit about his militant, nonviolent approach to activism. Now, all these are important ideas and their important moments in U.S. political history. But as I will argue here today, there are many other lessons that we can learn from Dr. King in the Civil Rights Movement and his history as a dissident citizen. 
In fact, a great deal about Dr. King that may well be most relevant to our contemporary moment has been swept surreptitiously under the rug of history. For instance, back to my own personal experience, when I was in high school and even college, I wasn't taught about Dr. King's fierce opposition, principled opposition, to the Vietnam War. I was not taught about his speech that he gave on the 4th of April 1967, precisely one year before he was assassinated. Gave a speech at Riverside Church in Harlem, where he started to question U.S. militarism, imperialism, I'm using his words now, and how they affected the civil rights struggle at home. To quote Dr. King from that speech, he said, When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. To conquer this nefarious nexus, King boldly asserted that we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. Now, I learned about this grounded, compassionate, radical, and I argue still relevant approach all too late in my life. When I started to get an education about my education, if you will. Now the ideas that Dr. King expressed late in his life are absolutely fascinating and we could spend a whole lot of time discussing the evolution of Dr. King's thinking, the shortcomings of the US educational system, the enormous gaps in our own personal educations, and so on. But today I want to focus on something else that I was never taught in high school. And that is from 1957 until his assassination on the 4th of April 1968, Dr. King was the target of an intensive campaign by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to, in the words of the Bureau, neutralize him as an effective civil rights leader. Now I'm going to talk about all this in a spirit of constructive engagement with a complex history, a complex person. The U.S. government has attempted to suppress the dissent of numerous groups and individuals throughout U.S. history, from early 20th century anarchists to numerous black power groups, from the modern-day abortion opponents to protesters of corporate-driven globalization, also known as the global justice movement. The iconoclastic journalist I.F. Stone once wrote, Governments lie. All governments lie. A possible corollary that I've sort of sought out in my research to this would be government suppress dissent. All governments suppress dissent. Of the targets of suppression, perhaps the quintessential example of a target is Martin Luther King Jr. The suppression was carried out with great intensity by the FBI as Dr. King emerged as an important leader in the civil rights movement. To quote King biographer David J. Garrow, no other black leader came in for the intensive and hostile attention that Dr. King was subjected to in the mid-1960s. But before we plunge into the specifics of this intensive and hostile attention, let's take a step backwards for a second and look at the bigger picture. According to both social movement scholars and on-the-ground activists of all stripes, 
One of the key goals that movements pressing for social change, whether they're progressive social change, reactionary social change, or anything in between, one of the key goals is to create safe spaces where you can hammer out your ideas, get them down, practice them, nurture leaders, where people can create strategies, refine strategies, and talk about strategies along the way. In short, these safe spaces are crucial, they're vital for social movements. Without these zones of opposition, many dissidents and social movements would find it really difficult to formulate and reformulate their ideas, their tactics, their strategies. And therefore, uh, if we didn't have these safe spaces, we'd have a lot harder time broadening the ideas in the public sphere and therefore enriching democracy. After all, dissent is absolutely crucial if you want to have a real democracy. Now, for the civil rights movement, these safe spaces included churches, community meeting rooms, public lecture halls, not unlike this one that we're in here today. So, in a sense, one lens for thinking about what I'm talking about today is that the FBI and the government more generally tried to infiltrate and destabilize these safe spaces, making it more difficult for the civil rights movement to be effective in terms of its dissent. I want to also say, before we get into the specifics, that a lot of what I'll talk about today is shocking and perhaps even upsetting. But it's not in the least bit disputed. Buried in the cracks and crevices of history? Yes. Disputed in terms of its factual veracity? No. In fact, a great deal of what I'll talk about today comes directly from government reports, comes directly out of internal memos from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, also comes out of mass media accounts and other sources. So let's, let's press forward and talk about how the FBI tried to stop Dr. King. To organize today, I broke it down into three sequential phases. The first phase is when the FBI tried to forge a connection between King and communism, to paint Dr. King as a communist. The second phase in the sequence comprises of efforts to discredit King's character and to stain his reputation. And then third, the third phase is to try to figure out ahead of time what the civil rights movement, what the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Dr. King's organization that he worked very hard with, what they were going to do, trying to figure out what they were going to do ahead of time. So prefigure the action. So I'll break it down in terms of these three phases. Now in terms of that first phase, forging connections between Dr. King and communists. In the mid-1970s, a committee, a governmental committee, a Senate select committee called the Church Committee, called the Church Committee because it was head by a gentleman called Frank Church, a Democrat from Idaho, they came out with a multi-book report that really broke down what had happened in terms of FBI really breaking the law, engaging in shenanigans, trying to undermine social movements. And in their final report, they said that, quote, from December 1963 until his death in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was the target of an intensive campaign by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to neutralize him as an effective civil rights leader. 
Now, the church committee is absolutely correct to say that the FBI tried to do this, but they're actually incorrect in terms of that start date because the FBI started their attention on Dr. King much earlier than 1963. In fact, in September 1957, an employee of the FBI called J.G. Kelly clipped an article from the newspaper about Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he sent it in to the FBI's field office in Atlanta. Basically, J.G. Kelly read the article and was shocked because what he saw was the SCLC was fighting against segregation, and it also promised to combat racial injustice and fight for voting rights for African Americans in the United States. This was intolerable to Kelly, sends it in, um, Doc, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who you'll be hearing a good deal about today, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the, the FBI, received this note from J.G. Kelly, and he was very receptive to this idea of keeping an eye on the civil rights movement and Dr. King in particular. He said, we're not going to start actually an investigation right now, but we're going to collect open source, public source information about Dr. King and the SCLC. Now, I said Hoover was open to this, and that's because we know that based on FBI documents in March 1956, he had already sent a series of uh, letters and reports to the White House about how the communists had actually infiltrated the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as the NAACP. So we'll keep an eye on J. Edgar Hoover as we proceed. A little background though, J. Edgar Hoover was the director of the FBI from 1924 until 1972. So a massive swath of U.S. history. Now, in, in 1962, Hoover decides that the civil rights movement and King have gone far enough, and now it's time to open up an investigation to see if, in fact, he is a communist or if he's hanging out with communists. So he opens up what's called a Common Fill investigation. Common Fill is an acronym that stands for Communist Infiltration. Basically, these started in the 1940s and went through the 1950s investigations about individuals and groups as to whether they were hanging out with communists or were, in fact, a communist. So they open up this investigation in October 1962. Now, this happened even though the Atlanta field office reported that, quote, it had no information regarding any communist infiltration of the SCLC, end quote. However, the Bureau did have some tenuous, and let's face it, pretty weak evidence that was circumstantial that Dr. King might be a communist. And so the FBI said, for example, that he had been approached by the black Communist Party member Benjamin Davis after Dr. King did a speech in Harlem in 1958. Just approached by him, but that was proof that he was around communists at least. He also, King, also associated with the Progressive Party when he was a student and undergraduate at Morehouse College in Atlanta in 1948. And the Bureau also noted that he had publicly thanked the Socialist Workers Party for, back, for its backing in the Montgomery bus boycott, and it also voiced, he had also voiced appreciation to Benjamin Davis for donating blood after King was stabbed in 1958 while participating in a book signing. So you can see right there, pretty tenuous uh, information, circumstantial evidence, if you will. But nevertheless, the suppression was set into motion via, as we'll see in great detail, surveillance and intensive surveillance at that. Now, a major 
part of the reason that Hoover was able to push this forward because, was because of two individuals who Dr. King worked with, who did in fact at one point have ties to the Communist Party. One of them was called Stanley Levison, and the other one was called Jack O'Dell. Mr. Levison had broken formal ties with the Communist Party by the fall of 1955, um, and he had no ties officially in 56 when he started working with Dr. King. Jack O'Dell, um, he, he never denied that he had worked within the Communist Party, and he had been a Communist Party organizer in the 1940s and 1950s. So the FBI was like, aha, two people that have been communists in the past, we can start to make this connection and really paint Dr. King as a communist. In March 1962, with the approval of then Attorney General Robert Kennedy, the FBI placed a wiretap on Stanley Levison's New York office. And thus we see how the, the series of wiretaps start to kick in motion and, as we'll see very shortly, started to build upon themselves. The FBI documented, took notes about these telephone calls that Levison was making with Dr. King. Levison was a very valued uh, advisor to Dr. King. He also ghost wrote a few articles for Dr. King, one of which I have in my office, if you'd like to see, that appeared in the Nation magazine. So the FBI would then take detailed summaries and they would send them to various officials to let these officials in the government know that in fact Dr. King was consorting with people who at one point were involved with the Communist Party. Essentially, as we'll see, they were able to devise a circle of self-reinforcing justification to continue to try to suppress the movement. Now, King responded to allegations of communist infiltration by saying, quote, there are about as many communists in this freedom struggle as there are Eskimos in Florida. That only got people within the Bureau more and more upset, but actually, years later, the church committee that I mentioned before corroborated this assessment and saying that we were unable to conclude whether either of these two advisors, Levison and Odell, uh, we are unable to conclude whether either of these two were connected with the Communist Party when the case was opened in 1962 or any, any time thereafter. The report goes on to say unequivocally, um, Dr. King was not a communist or member of the Communist Party. Nevertheless, the government proceeded, and particularly the, the Kennedy brothers, Robert F. Kennedy and John F. Kennedy, and they, they continued to put great pressure on Dr. King. Um, they wanted him to get rid of all the communists that were ever even communists because it was going to besmirch the movement in their eyes and make it more difficult to pass legislation. So they started to put pressure on him left and right with all sorts of advisors coming to Dr. King and saying, you must divorce yourself from these people. In 1963, in June the 17th, this pressure on King reached the highest level. When Dr. King was visiting John F. Kennedy in the White House, Kennedy took King on a stroll through the Rose Garden, leaving his office, and he said, look, Dr. King, you must ditch Odell and Levison. They're communists. You've got to get rid of them, he reportedly said. Actually, King stood up for Levison, saying that he needed some proof that they were actually communists, and the president replied by saying, uh, they are, trust me, and I hope you know that you're under intensive surveillance. King later joked uh, with one of his advisors, Andrew Young, about the incident, saying that John F. Kennedy was afraid to talk to him in his own office, jokingly saying, I guess Hoover must be bugging him too. Jokes aside, during the intense pressure, uh, due to the intense pressure put on Dr. King and the SCLC, King ended up breaking off contact, direct contact, 
with both Levis and Odell, and Odell, and actually continued through a third party, a gentleman named Clarence B. Jones, who's still very active in civil rights and social justice struggles today, and is a writer. You can see his stuff on Huffington Post if you like. Yet nevertheless, he severed ties, direct ties, and the surveillance, as we see, continues. You might be asking yourself, why? Well, part of the answer actually lies in the fact that J. Edgar Hoover, on an individual level, did not like Dr. King and his movement for social change. Hoover referred to King as no good, among other things, and it's interesting to look at the FBI documents and look at how Hoover would scrawl things in the margins, all sorts of, of marginalia. He also, Hoover, also said in an internal memo that King should be placed on what they call at the time the Section A of the Reserve Index and tabbed a communist. Now, the Section A of the Reserve Index was basically this list of people that if there was a national emergency, they'd round them up and ferry them off and then hide them, basically, detain them until things calmed over. So at that point, they put Dr. King and many others on this list. Now, Dr. King fanned the flames of ire between Hoover and himself when, in a response to a report written by a historian, Howard Zinn, as well as the Southern Regional Council. Uh, this report was about uh, police and their works, local police working with the FBI, and King commented on that and said, yes, they are, and in fact, um, they're together enforcing segregation. Well, these remarks that were in newspapers across the country set off a firestorm within the Bureau. The next day, during an interview, J. Edgar Hoover told a gaggle of reporters that, quote, in view of King's attitude and his continued criticism of the FBI, I consider King to be the most notorious liar in the country. He's saying this publicly. Hoover also said that King was, quote, one of the lowest characters in the country and that he was controlled by the communists who were advising him. Now, when I give you these specific quotes from Hoover and William Sullivan shortly, Alan Belmont and others, I want you to listen very carefully to the language because later on I'm going to read a letter that was written to, F to Dr. King from the FBI, and you can sort of see shadows of this language in that later letter. Hoover expanded his verbal assault against Dr. King in a subsequent speech at the Chicago Loyola Medical School, where he said about Dr. King and the SCLC, um, he, he called them pressure groups that would crush the rights of others under heel, and whose members think with their emotions, seldom with reason. His attack built to a crescendo, as he said these dissident groups, quote, have no compunction in carping, lying, and exaggerating with the fiercest of passion, spearheaded at times by communists and moral degenerates. William Sullivan, who was one of Hoover's top-level associates at the FBI, uh, he, he said later about Hoover, he said this in front of the church committee, mind you, Hoover's dead at this point, so it was really easy to start to pin all this stuff on Hoover, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. Sullivan said in front of the church committee, he said that, I think it was all racial bias, the dislike of Negroes, the dislike of the civil rights movement. I do not think he, he's talking about Hoover, could rise above that. So there you see phase one, trying to paint Dr. King as a communist. The second phase was trying to discredit Dr. King's moral character. In 1963 and 1964, this racism-fueled animosity at the Bureau 
led to two important shifts in terms of the suppression of Dr. King. First of all, surveillance went up through the roof of Dr. King. And secondly, the, focus, the, the purpose of that surveillance changed from painting him as a communist to a real serious preoccupation with Dr. King as a person. After Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech in the summer of 1963, there, there was a uh, it was a speech that the FBI called in internal documents demagogic. William Sullivan wrote a memo and passed it through the Bureau that came to this conclusion. I'm going to quote directly from the memo. Quote, King stands head and shoulders over all other Negro leaders put together when it comes to influencing the great masses of Negroes. We must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro, and national security. In October 1963, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy gave the go-ahead to put wiretaps on Dr. King's home, as well as the SCLC offices in Atlanta and New York. Now, Kennedy was very reluctant to do this, but felt all sorts of political pressure to do so. He wanted to get this legislation put through about civil rights, and he feared that King, uh, the information that was circulating in elite circles about King, what might derail the movement. Also, J. Edgar Hoover had caches of information about all sorts of people. And I'm not going to slide into a People Magazine moment of political history here, but John F. Kennedy um, did get around a little bit and had affairs with women aside from his wife. J. Edgar Hoover knew this. A lot of people knew this at the time. And so that information was sort of floating in the air as well in that time where RFK made that decision. In any case... Using the, the wiretaps on his home, they got a bunch of information. They also, the FBI, extended these wiretaps to the hotel rooms where Dr. King stayed. They also put microphones, known as electronic surveillance in FBI parlance, LSERS. They did put electronic surveillance uh, on Dr. King's hotel rooms, hiding microphones beneath the bedstand and this sort of thing. They were going for specific information, and they would not be denied that information, as we'll see shortly. Now, so in the bigger context, Time Magazine, 1963, names Dr. King its man of the year. Meanwhile, the FBI is planting bugs in the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C., trying to get derogatory information about Dr. King. Dr. King was also being invited all around the world to speak. He had an audience with Pope Paul VI in Rome. He was also named the Nobel Prize winner for 1964. This was just getting the FBI more and more upset. In fact, the Bureau tried to undermine him from getting that award, talked to all sorts of people to try to get him information that would, that would allow them to, or would convince them not to support Dr. King. They even tried to prevent there being a welcome home party for Dr. King when he returned from Sweden with his, uh, from Scandinavia with his prize. And this is kind of a separate note, but they also asked the IRS for his tax documents so they could look through them to make sure everything was on the up and up. As it turns out, when they did this in January 1964, everything was on the up and up, but he got extra scrutiny of his tax documents as well. They even passed the idea through internal documents and memos that they should plant a, this is a quote right out of a working paper. Place a good-looking female plant in King's office, end quote, in order to increase the chances that they would be able to collect information about King. Now, they were focusing on his extramarital relationships and um, 
And so that's what they're really going for. And the idea, according to Agent Alan Belmont, was that we will, at the, at the proper time, when it can be done without embarrassment to the Bureau, expose King as an immoral opportunist who is not a sincere person, but is exploiting the racial situation for personal gain. Belmont also vowed as soon as possible to quote, and again, listen to the language, it'll reverberate, expose King for the clerical fraud and Marxist that he is. You're listening to Jules Boykoff on Martin Luther King Jr. and the FBI. This is AR. You can order copies of this program by calling our toll-free number, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So they collect this information in various hotel rooms. They basically splice it together in, in what they call the highlight reel of debauchery. They also put out an eight-page report that they would pass along to people who were political elites, trying to get them to say, oh, this, have second thoughts about Dr. King. Look at his, his personal life. And so they cobble together this report. They pass it with, to members of Congress, UN representatives Adelaide Stevenson and Ralph Bunch, prominent church leaders, and other influential figures who might get into an alliance with Dr. King. They also sent a tape, this highlight reel, if you will, to the SCLC office. And they sent it 34 days before he was to receive the Nobel Prize. I say that for a reason you'll see in a second. In, a, in addition to the tape, the cassette tape from the hotels, they also included a letter. And this letter was supposedly written by an African-American male, but it was actually written, remember, by the FBI. I'm going to read sections of it so you can actually get, a, get the real texture of what the FBI was writing. It starts off by saying, King, in view of your low grade, I will not dignify your name with either a mister or a reverend or a doctor. And your name recalls only to mind the type of king such as King Henry VIII. I always thought that's kind of odd, a literary illusion right off the bat. In any case, um, goes on to say, You are no clergyman, and you know it. I repeat, you are a colossal fraud and an evil, vicious one at that. You could not believe in God. Clearly, you don't believe in any personal moral principles. Again, the letter goes on from the FBI. King, like all frauds, your end is approaching. You could have been our greatest leader. You, even at an early age, have turned out to be not a leader, but a dissolute, abnormal, moral imbecile. It goes on to say, King, you are done. Calls him a fraud, says, what incredible evilness, King, you are done. Then this is the part where some activists and scholars argue that the FBI was trying to get Dr. King to actually commit suicide. I'm not so sure about that conclusion, but I'll just read it to you right out of the letter. You can decide for yourself. It says, King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do this. Then it says in parentheses, this number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance, which I always thought was really tonally <laughs> off. In any case, uh, you have just 34 days in which to do this. You are done. There was but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. So your tax dollars at work in the form of the FBI sending a letter to Dr. King. Now, 
It was received at the SCLC offices. Coretta Scott King, his wife, was actually the one who first came across it. She re- people would send in tapes of his speeches around the country. She realized pretty quick this was not one of those speeches. Calls Dr. King into the office. He listens to it three times. He gets his, his closest advisors like Ralph Abernathy, Bernard Lee, Joseph Lowry, and Andrew Young. They sit down. They listen to it. And they realize that they've been getting bugged in their hotels and, and all around for a long time. And this is when King was clearly rattled by what had had happened and he said he feel he felt like a moral failure he said later and he said famously they are out to break me this kind of activity continues until 1966 when senator edward long of missouri instigated an investigation of the use of electronic surveillance by the fbi Hoover decides, whoa, let's stop right now before this word gets out. This Senator Long is doing this investigation. So actually, in the final two years of Dr. King's life, he never experienced microphone surveillance, so hidden microphones in his place of employment or where he was staying. So nevertheless, uh, this, this phase in the suppression of Dr. King and the SCLC allowed the FBI to identify potential pressure points within the civil rights movement And it gave the the Bureau political grist it could use to alienate King's potential allies in the political realm. Going to our last phase here, phase three, the desire to figure out ahead of time or prefigure what the civil rights movement was going to do. I would also add that the Bureau was trying to isolate Dr. King within the bigger civil rights liberation struggle. The black power movement was coming into its own at this time, and the civil rights movement of Dr. King's ilk was doing its best to move north in a concerted way, whether it was to Harlem or Chicago. Um, So it was trying to spread its geographical scope with more concerted forays to the north. Now, during this time period, you know, they stopped the electronic bugging, and so the FBI ended up relying more on a different form of suppression, and that is the infiltrator of, of somebody who's not an actual legitimate member of the group. And so they had somebody, some call them informants, some call them snitches, um, somebody by the name of James Harrison, who by the fall of 1965, had, who was a young accountant within the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he had decided that he was going to become an FBI informant. Mr. Harrison, armed with the not-so-catchy codename AT13878-S, uh, worked closely with Atlanta agent Alan Centinella. They met weekly, and, he would, and Harrison would provide information to Centinella about strategies and tactics of the civil rights movement, what they were going to do, when, and where. For his efforts, the Bureau actually paid Harrison more than he got paid by the SCLC from his salary. And Harrison wasn't the, and actually Harrison was there at the end as well, giving information right up until um, the interventions that King and the SCLC were doing in Memphis, Tennessee in April 1968 when he was assassinated. So he was there, Harrison, right up until the end. Harrison wasn't the only person to infiltrate the SCLC ranks. Um, there was the Poor People's Movement, which was basically toward the end of Dr. King's life, a real focus on economic justice, and it was trying to get all these sort of localized poverty struggles to join forces and jump scale to the national level and force the Congress to pass an economic bill of rights in legislation. So that was this big project that Dr. King was involved with and many, many, many others at the end of his life when he was killed. But there was a number of people who had infiltrated the, the, this movement, the Poor People's Movement, 
Also, it's, it's interesting that this type of surveillance also and, and suppression also dovetailed with what some people call Dr. King's radical turn, where he deeply and publicly questioned U.S. militarism and imperialistic tendencies, again, in his words. He even started to wonder about, about capitalism. And thus his biographer, David Garrow, writes, quote, In the last 12 months of his life, King represented a far greater political threat to the reigning American government than he ever had before. An intensified interest in his political activities was perfectly in keeping with that development. King's cross-examination of capitalism and its intersection with militarism was articulated forcefully on the 4th of April, 1967, when King delivered an anti-Vietnam War speech at Riverside Church, the one I mentioned at the outset of this talk. During this speech, King said the United States was, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. The FBI responded aggressively to this speech, starting what was called a COINTELPRO against Dr. King. Step back, COINTELPRO is an acronym that stands for counterintelligence programs. The FBI ran them from 1956 until 1971. There were five different branches, Communist Party, Socialist Workers Party, the New Left, which the SDS was a part of, incidentally, um, the black nationalist hate groups, and white hate groups. Dr. King was slotted under the black nationalist hate group rubric in his COINTELPRO. That might sound counterintuitive, given that he preached love, not hate, but he was put under the black nationalist hate group rubric by the FBI. <clears throat> the stated purpose of this black nationalist hate group COINTELPRO was, just straight out of their documents, to, quote, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist hate-type organizations and groupings. Their leadership, spokesmen, membership, and supporters to counter their propensity for violence and civil disorder. For violence and civil disorder. The FBI would often justify including Dr. King, even though he brought militant nonviolence to the activist table. They would often justify including him in this black nationalist hate group rubric by saying, sure, he might not be violent, but the milieu in which he works is violent. And the state response, the government response to what they were trying to do was sometimes violent. So there was violence kind of in the area, so they could justify including him in this program. Incidentally, it wasn't just the FBI that was critical of Dr. King's radical turn. Mainstream media coverage of this speech, the one at Riverside Church, was scathing. Newsweek called his speech an extravagantly vituperative attack on his government that carelessly mixes political and economic arguments, engages in specious arithmetic, and conflates moral and political values. So much for objective journalism there. Um, he said, they said at the end, he can only serve his people poorly, in any case, by assaying the smoothest mimicry of their roughest extremists, so painting him as an extremist. Time magazine turned to an African-American lieutenant from the military who said, I don't think any American leader, black or white, can assist the cause of freedom by preaching the cause of sedition. So bringing in sedition in the context of Dr. King. Furthermore, I don't think Martin Luther King is qualified enough in international relations to open his mouth on American policy in Vietnam. Ralph Bunch, who I mentioned before, was getting these reports through surreptitious circles. He also attacked King in the media. And he, Ralph Bunch, his words were all over the media at this time, questioning Dr. King's leadership. In Time magazine, 
Bunch said that, that King was diverting his attention from the real cause of civil rights and getting too into these economic rights that are pulling us away from the political rights that we should be focusing on. The Washington Post attacked Dr. King for offering irresponsible analysis based on sheer inventions, is a quote, sheer inventions and unsupported fantasy. The Post concluded, many who have listened to him with respect will never again accord him with the same confidence. He has diminished his usefulness to his cause, to his country, and to his people. And one final example from Life magazine, which took it even a step further, in an editorial that was titled, Dr. King's Disservice to His Cause, they said that King, quote, goes beyond his personal right to dissent when he connects progress and civil rights here with a proposal that amounts to abject surrender in Vietnam. Therefore, they concluded that he comes close to betraying the cause for which he has worked so long. They condemned his speech as, quote, demagogic slander that sounded like a script for Radio Hanoi. Now, as you surely noticed, a great deal of this coverage rang with a disciplinary, paternalistic, castigating tone, as if the media were disappointed in King's position on the Vietnam War. On the other hand, the Johnson administration was absolutely pleased with this kind of coverage and, in fact, did their best through back channels to amplify this message. Now, Dr. King was tracked all the way through his assassination on the 4th of April, 1968, but it actually even goes beyond that, believe it or not. In March 1969, the FBI tried to prevent Congress from passing a law declaring King's birthday a national holiday. The Bureau's Crime Records Division recommended uh, that key members of Congress be briefed by FBI agents in order to learn that, quote, King was a scoundrel. So again, you see the circulation of these reports. In April 1969, someone from the FBI suggested opening up a counterintelligence action against Coretta Scott King, to which, to Hoover's credit, said, that's going too far. Um, Thanks for the suggestion, but we're not going to do that. That brings us to the question, did this even matter? Did this have an effect on the civil rights movement? After all, I mean, we've we've been celebrating today the amazing accomplishments that Dr. King and the many, many people he worked with accomplished during the civil rights movement. So, I mean, they accomplished a lot. Did this even have an effect? Well, the church committee that I mentioned at the outset said that the FBI had a, quote, unquestionable effect on Dr. King and the civil rights movement because they had to alter their tactics, they had to alter their strategies, their safe spaces were infiltrated, so you always felt like you weren't quite at ease. The person talking to you could be an infiltrator, and that really undermined the civil rights movement in a lot of specific ways. It also, these reports that were circulating with all this malevolent information about Dr. King, these reports really cut into the civil rights ability to raise funds. And we all know that to be a successful social movement, you have to have resources in the form of both people and hopefully in terms of money as well. So by the end of Dr. King's life, he's basically operating on the assumption that he is under surveillance. And what does that lead to? But of course, self-censorship. Try it sometime. When you're going to bed tonight, or you're talking at the dinner table with your family and friends, that would be even better, just pretend that you're under surveillance and that the government is trying to stop you from doing what you're doing, going to school, being politically active, whatever it is that you do. Just play it through your mind a little bit at dinner and then see if it makes you change your behavior. Think twice about what you talk about. Just try it tonight and see what happens. Now you might be wondering to yourself, my goodness, Why did this guy spend all this time today talking about the quite bleak topic 
of the FBI's efforts to suppress Martin Luther King Jr. After all, shining a spotlight on the underbelly of U.S. history can be a painful, disorienting experience. Well, the answer to that is, first of all, I didn't want you to wait as long as I had to wait to get your hands on this information. And also, to, I didn't want you to have to wait as long as I did to grapple with the complexity of history. After all, we're at Pacific University right now, and no matter what class you're taking uh, or lecture you're attending, you're being asked to grapple with complexity, deal with complexity, make sense of complexity. So this talk is in that spirit. Also, I believe that when it comes to the suppression of dissent in the United States, ignorance is not bliss. Martin Luther King Jr. is rightly held up as an American hero. We learn about him in textbooks, but as I've tried to show today, for many of us, the textbooks didn't give the full picture. Flattening history by sandblasting away the sharp edges of contradiction and prettifying political struggle only serves the powerful. But beyond all that, I also think the suppression of Dr. King is extremely relevant to our contemporary moment. While we rightly celebrate his leadership during the Montgomery bus boycott, his determination in Birmingham, and the inimitable eloquence of his I Have a Dream speech, it's important to also recall a less heralded aspect of King's history, the FBI's intensive efforts to squelch his dissent. In fact, it's this facet of his legacy that may well be most instructive in post-9-11 America. Since knowing how the government and media have historically suppressed dissent helps us better understand the squelching of dissent in our contemporary moment. The last thing I really want to talk about is bring that all to a concrete head. How does Dr. King help us understand our contemporary reality? And I want to talk just for a minute about something called the USA Patriot Act. It stands, it's, by the way, it's USA Patriot is an acronym which stands for Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing the Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism Act of 2001. I think we might do well to remember that, in fact, that is an acronym and an ideologically drenched acronym at that. But what would happen if Dr. King were alive today? Well, first of all, Section 213 of the Patriot Act the so-called sneak-and-peek provision of the act, allows the FBI to come into your home or workplace when you're not there or asleep, and they don't have to show you the warrant ahead of time. They can just have it in their pocket. There's no knock-and-announce policy, you know, the old Fourth Amendment. Um, you don't have to do any of that. You just come on in when they're asleep, take pictures, borrow documents, if you will, and then leave. They, the FBI would have loved to have had this instilled in law during the time they were trying to suppress Dr. King. What about Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which is about um, the surveillance of, uh, of all what's called right from the Act, any tangible things, including books, records, papers, documents, and other items, as long as these items are, quote, relevant to a terrorism investigation. In other words, they could look at your list of classes taken in college, not because you're a terrorist, because you're in any kind of trouble, but just because your records are relevant to a terrorist investigation, like someone accidentally called your mobile phone number, dialed the wrong number, happened to be a, a real live terrorist, and they do exist, of course, and they got through to you, all of a sudden they're on you, looking at your list of college courses, taking all that. But what I really want to focus on is Section 802 of the USA Patriot Act. No one is hardly talking about this thing, but it basically creates a new federal crime called domestic terrorism. And I want to just read the provision. 
It says that domestic terrorism is, quote, activities that involve acts dangerous to human life that are in violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state that appear to be intended, one, to intimidate or coerce a civilian population. To intimidate or coerce a civilian population. Two, to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion. Or three, to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, and kidnapping. Now that definition is quite vague and wide-reaching, and it doesn't take the imagination of an avant-garde poet to envision how this might be used to criminalize legitimate political dissent, even that of Martin Luther King Jr. After all, Activist interventions are by definition designed, quote, to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion. And sometimes the state's response to protests, even peaceful ones, can create situations that might be construed as, quote, acts dangerous to human life, as we saw infamously in Birmingham, Alabama, when Bull Connor and his forces broke out their batons and fire hoses. Also, you might just note that acts of civil disobedience are by definition in violation of the criminal laws of the United States. In effect, the inherent vagueness of this new federal crime of domestic terrorism allows the government to lump together the nonviolent, civil disobedience practicing heroes of world history, Dr. King, Thoreau, Gandhi, allows them to group them together with real terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, all under the catch-all phrase, terrorist. So acts of civil disobedience that were just breaches of local law before all of a sudden become violations of federal anti-terrorism laws. In conclusion, in light of all this, I think it's necessary to return to Dr. King's radical vision for a more just future. As I mentioned at the outset, he said in his speech at Riverside Church, quote, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. And I would add that we need to do our best to shift from a surveillance-drenched society where having ideas that challenge the status quo is questionable, shady, and even criminal to the person-oriented society King envisioned where dissent is viewed as proof of a healthy democracy in full flourish. Thank you. Any questions or comments? The question from the audience was, did the U.S. government play a role in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.? Well, I know some of you have read a book by William Pepper called An Act of State that takes on that very question in great detail. The the author of that book argues that indeed the FBI and actually military intelligence as well was right up there right until the end. And there's a whole series of fishy activity going on uh, around Dr. King. And I it, it starts to slide. The problem for Mr. Pepper is that when people start to talk about this, the conspiracy theory term starts to come to mind. And people, when they hear the word conspiracy theory or just conspiracy, they generally tend to turn off their mind and think, wow, that person is a nutbag. Um, but before you do that, I, I would say take a look at the actual book. And in fact, what, what Mr. Pepper or Barrister Pepper, he's a lawyer from England um, or working in England, what he did was... <clears throat> He compiled all the fishy aspects of it. Like, that, in fact, there was um, none of James Earl Ray, the supposed assassin of Dr. King, none of his um, biological material in the room where the bullets were, were uh, supposedly shot from, that there was a poof of smoke viewed by at least three eyewitnesses out of the bushes 
behind this, this place that was run by a guy called Lloyd Jowers, who was the proprietor of this basically a pub kind of place. They saw a poof of smoke come out of there. Incidentally, the next day, the, the government in Memphis cut down all those bushes, which is kind of an odd thing to do at a crime scene, just start removing huge amounts of material and just uh, getting rid of it. Um, there's a lot that needs to be looked at. And in fact, Peppers has the support of the King family on this, Dexter King and, and others that have supported Mr. Peppers throughout all this. And they did a civil trial back in uh, November 1999. And they just did it for 100, 100 bucks. So they were trying to say, we're not doing it for money. We're not trying. And they won this suit that said that Lloyd Jowers, the gentleman I mentioned who's the proprietor, and the U.S. government, more particularly the FBI and military intelligence, had something to do with what happened uh, when Dr. King was assassinated. 30% in favor of, 30% they put on, this, this jury put on Jowers, 70% on military intelligence and the FBI. So if you, I mean, there's a lot there. If you look at the official government report, there, there's a whole lot of problems with it. Um, I, I hope that if you're interested in that question, you'll look critically at the report and you'll read skeptics. I, I mentioned David J. Garrow. And my understanding is that he's very skeptical of Mr. Peppers and, and his approach. And Garrow is a scholar to be reckoned with. I mean, that's why I mentioned him in, in this talk today a number of times. And so I would encourage you to take on that very interesting question. But I will say this. It's not nearly as simple as James Earl Ray pulling out a gun and assassinating Dr. King. There's a whole lot more to it. So thanks very much. That was Jules Boykoff on Martin Luther King Jr. and the FBI. He spoke at Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon, on January 21, 2008. Jules Boykoff is professor of politics and government at Pacific University. He's the author of The Suppression of Dissent. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, an unembedded award-winning weekly series based in Boulder, Colorado. AR is independent. Our sole source of financial support comes directly from listeners just like you. AR features such voices as Naomi Klein, Vandana Shiva, Angela Davis, Howard Zinn, and Noam Chomsky. To access our vast audio catalog, including Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic Riverside Church speech, Beyond Vietnam, and to find out about subscribing to AR so you don't miss a single program, go to our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for a CD, MP3, or written transcript of the program you just heard, Jules Boykoff on Martin Luther King Jr. and the FBI, call us toll-free at one 800 4 1977. Again, that toll-free number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our secure website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Ali Lightfoot is our editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Nora York. Masters of War Remix, featuring Martin Luther King Jr. speaking at Riverside Church. Revolutionary time. Revolutionary time. Not just the name of this jam. 
that hide behind 